It's time for building the game. Building the game with Jason and friends. Tabletop game design with Jason and friends. It's at the end of the episode. That's when it technically ends. Hello and welcome to Building the Game, a documentary podcast. Today is Monday, March twenty eighth, and you're listening to episode five hundred and thirteen. As always, I am your host, Jason. Today, once again, joined by co-host, Nicole Amato. Hello, Nicole. Hi, Jason. Hello. And you have brought with you a very special guest today. Uh, someone who you, quote, stay up to the wee hours of the morning uh, playing games online. <laughs> and that is uh, game designer, Shraman Suba. Subaraman. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Incredibly white right now. This is literally flashbacks from like third grade when they would announce my name over the PA. Um, <gasps> Why would they announce your name over the PA? Were you well, bad? Well, the best time was when it was someone who's clearly not used to it um, and was like, uh, could, uh... well, so like the, the background is every teacher, right, like would struggle with their name and would, would do like a... You were from Minnesota, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so and it became so common that we would know when a teacher got to our name in the list yep. and just be like, yep, I'm here. You can move on. Don't bother. You know, we'll save each other some trouble. Um, yeah, because Shiraman has a twin brother. We should we should also add in here. But yes. they also they don't put twins in the same class. Oh, like you have to go out of your way to make that happen because they know that if uh you do that twins will not socialize with other people right um interesting i yeah, did not so know that they like actively separate you um but uh yeah there was one point um where i got i think i was getting picked up for like a doctor's appointment or something and i got called to the office to get picked up and the person was like could uh just did they just like figured they led with the S and mumbled. That was enough, right? Um, and I think like they... if I put seven syllables into it and start with an S, <laughs> yeah, they'll know who I'm talking about. I think about. they thought they were past the hard part because then there's a slight pause and you could tell they were reading the last name and they were like, oh, shoot. Uh, <laughs> uh, so there was like, could... uh, Superman, come to the office, please. Um, it is it is funny though like if you look at your name it is like it, it well okay after you you said it to me and I, I wrote out your first name phonetically uh like it's not i mean i changed the first r to an h and then it just like it just made sense like yeah um and suba ramen like really is like is phonetic it's very if phonetic not, yes not for that extra b it would be perfectly phonetic yeah it does make me want to say suba ramen um but uh, yeah, because of the or double sub barman, but you have to cut out an A in order for that one to work. Sub bar a man? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's a different question. We can cover that in a different podcast. <laughs> now on pronunciation. Well, so yeah, so you and your brother uh, designed uh, Phoenix Covenant, um, a tactics yes. card game. Yes, a tactics card game. Uh, and Nicole brought this to my attention when I said, hey, who should we have on the show this week? And she said, these two jokesters. Uh, actually, she didn't say that. Uh, but all the context around inviting you made me hear her say these two jokesters. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, how right. about my friends? And then I put like 26 syllables into the chat. 
and uh, he, I was like, they made this game. They're working on some other games. Their their names don't their full names don't fit on standard governmental forms. <laughs> yeah, my wife actually had her. My wife's name is Stephanie, and her last name is Slingerland, so she actually has that same problem. <laughs> I did not mention, though, that these are the gentlemen that I stay up until 2 a.m. playing video games with until you did just not. before the show. Yes. I can see why, though. It seems like they would be fun to play video games with. Oh, they are very um, fun to play games with. Okay. Tough to host a podcast with, but easy to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did yes. lose one uh, to, a, to a work call five minutes before. Yes. I did suggest they just hop on from well on the work call, but that was that was shot down. So, But, yeah. So we here we are. Human, human science has concluded humans can actually multitask. We just like to pretend. Yeah. Yes. No. I uh, actually I um I do a whole like thing on that with my coaching stuff where I explain to people that like all the science says not only uh, can't you multitask that multitasking or attempting to multitask actually actually damages your brain permanently uh, by helping you no longer be able to focus on single things. Um, and uh and that's not that's not great so. i presume i have to presume it's not permanent it's got to be like reversible as long as you exit the behavior for a while yeah I mean, that's sure the problem is i don't like think i can't do. yeah. yeah i can't do it i can't do anything now like I, I i can't watch a tv show without doing something else yeah addition. right i mean i'm right there with you the amount of times i feel uncomfortable if i'm just doing one thing yep um like i have to have music on the back on the background sometimes anytime i have a tv show on the background um i'm comfortable but completely ineffective <laughs> um and i and i feel you know it's just one of those things where it's like the worst of all options right yeah. like either i can be uncomfortable but a chance at effective or comfortable and then like seven hours pass by and you're like i don't think i got anything done yeah um, yeah one of my favorite things is to find a game that I can have on my phone, like a, um, I've got this farming game I play right now. And so basically I'll just leave it open all day. And then every 30 minutes, it'll say that your crops are ready. And I click harvest and I click plant and then I can just go back to work. But because that's there and it's doing something, it like takes just enough of my attention that it allows me to focus. Um, and it is sad that we have turned our brains to that, but like, but we, we have, I mean, we all have. Our brains are ruined. Yeah, we, we all have. Yeah, we I um, um I listen to audiobooks now always when I drive because it actually helps me focus on driving because it like gives me the distraction while also letting me listen to the audio, you know, while also driving. So yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um I I mean I don't think the the audiobook driving is I think one of those unique circumstances where uh, it is useful because driving is so banal a task once you're mm -hmm. reasonably good at it that like allowing yourself it's easy to slip into like your mind gets bored and you essentially slip into a haze yeah um, so i think having something on you know like people will always say like it's nice to have someone in the car who's talking to you right, right. um because you can like uh, it it's like sort of works fine if you're going to a place that you know like my dad would con would like told us at one point that he spent half the day driving around because he kept like intending to go to a place and then ending up at another place right like he'd 
he was like, oh, I'm going to the office. But he ended up like at the other office because he had to go to like multiple places to do work. And so he just kept ending up at places that he didn't intend on being because he would zone out essentially in the middle and just autopilot. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought that was madness until I did it myself a few times. And I was like, yeah. wow, yeah, that's zany. But I do think in general, right, that that urge to multitask just... Um, is like poise it's just ruinous to getting anything actually done yeah um i have um gotten really into audiobooks and it has so so when anthony was very sick he got really into audiobooks which got me really into audiobooks and now we have like tw- i have like 29 audible credits <laughs> so whenever wow. my friends are like oh i'm like really bored or i'm looking for a new book series i'm like let me buy it for you on audible and i'm shocked at how many people i know are like oh i can't do audiobooks and it's like you know what two years ago i was also a person who was like oh i can't do audiobooks and then like once i started doing them like i now i listen to audiobooks in the shower i listen to audiobooks while i'm sorting and doing the laundry i listen to audiobooks while i'm Mm -hmm. washing the dishes like anytime i'm doing a task where i'm like not like I don't have yeah, that to, sounds like... super mentally engaging. Yeah. yeah. So I it's am really like... helpful. Yeah, it is. It helps yeah, I... the task not be so boring. <laughs> and it's positive <laughs> multitasking, right? Because you don't need your whole brain to engage in that in that thing you're doing. And then you can be entertained or like I listen to pretty much only nonfiction audiobooks just because I just like gross. to learn about stuff. What'd you say? Because <laughs> he's obsessed gross. with the war. No, I okay. Real quick here, I'll, I will tell you some of the audiobooks I've been reading. They're not, uh, they are not boring, uh, and they are not about war. Um, I just finished one that you would really like, Nicole, called Super Mario by Jeff Ryan. Highly recommend it. It's a history of Nintendo in America. Uh, I think I might have read that one. I'll it's real it good. Jeff um, Ryan is his name. Yeah. I can't um, type, so I have to put this into my phone. Smell it. What if by Randall Moore? That's real good. Um, the design of everyday things, all game designers. Right, that's the, X, that's the XKCD. Um, yeah, yeah, it's the XKCD guy. guy. Yeah, and it's he's narrated like, by Will Wheaton. He's creating. He's publishing What If Two, right? It's coming out relatively soon. There's a no. Oh, is he? Oh gosh, I hope so. I'm super stoked about that. Then. Wait, what was the book that you said? That second one that you just said. What if? What if? The design yeah. of everyday things. Oh, The Design of Everyday Things. Yeah, that's by Don Norman. That is a really long book. The Design of Everyday Things is one of the best books I've ever read. Did you read the unabridged version, though, and the revised version? Because let me tell you what, that book was really long. It was like a movie that was two hours too long. <laughs> the guy repeated himself a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, um, I had to read that book for school. Oh, okay. For, for grad school. So it, it might have been long, but a lot of my books were long. <laughs> And the new book I recommend to everyone, if you like wilderness stuff, is The Sun is a Compass by Carolyn Van Hemert. Just send me this um, whole list. Okay, I will do that. Let's uh, let's go ahead and chat about uh, games. So, so yeah, so tonight, um, so uh, the game that y'all designed, Phoenix Covenant, is a, is a tactics game. Uh, it's got, you know, board, cards on the board, moving around, attacking each other. I did... I did something that I don't normally do. I did research before we did the podcast. I actually went out and watched a how to play video. I'm of, so proud um, of you. Of uh, one of y'all doing the uh, uh, walkthrough uh, for someone. And uh, that was really, really helpful. Um, and so what I thought we were, we were going to talk about tactics and movements in games in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
what I thought we'd do is kind of reverse it and start with a pitch of your game to kind of show us, like for anybody who's not familiar with that genre or that style of game, uh, we'll get a nice understanding of what your game is like and where you're coming from, and then we'll have a more general discussion about it after that. So Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, our, our pitch is it's magic meets Final Fantasy Tactics. Um, so uh, for people who don't know either of those games um essentially uh magic is about um having a set of cards that you can play often making sort of interesting choices between which ones to play at what time um and trying to use you know the limited resources that you have at any one time to you know outsmart outthink outplay your opponent um we liked the the speed at which um, Magic played and sort of the um, the rhythm of play as well as um, the tactics involved. Um, but so, I think a big struggle for us with um, that form of game was how quickly, um, how uh, tit-for-tat the game was, right? Like, um, especially if you're, for people who know Magic, if you're playing against someone who is playing either blue or black um one where you know i just don't think blue should be in games um that's my hot take um <laughs> that uh uh you know a lot of the things that you play especially like cool like i played a planeswalker or i played like this really boss champion card that i took a long time to get out um then just dies to a doom blade um and you're like well that's over um and um the nice thing so the second game right essentially that we that was in this hybridization final fantasy tactics is a jrpg um you put it's i think essentially the archetypal um tactics jrpg or srpg i can't remember what they're called um i think it's a, i think it's a i think it's a tactical jrpg i don't think it's an srpg because srpgs are um like fire emblem right but fire, uh, but fire emblem is a tactics. Well, then it is an SRPG. It's a strategy <laughs> RPG. Yeah, I've never played um, tactics. I'm sorry. Please take away my gamer card. I honestly don't even understand most of the things y'all are saying. <laughs> Perfect, nailed it. Uh, so yes, for for the um the slingerlands of the world, um, we'll say so. Chess is like the most ubiquitous uh strategy um tactics game that people can talk about right because you have a bunch of mm -hmm. uh pieces on your board they all have interesting ways that they move about the board yeah, yeah. um and, and your goal is to you know use your pieces better than your opponent um mm -hmm. and and i'm familiar with that it's the the jrpg side of things that i'm just not as so picture that but with a bunch of scantily clad uh, Japanese characters. Not true of Final Fantasy Tactics. Well, yes, um, true of Fire Emblem. Yeah, uh, to some degree. Not so much with Three Houses, thankfully. Um, There's a little boob in Three Houses. There, okay, yeah. Okay, is as bad as Fire Emblem. Okay, yeah. definitely. Uh, I'm not going to talk about Fef, but... Um, <laughs> but, like, I mean, the art style of Final Fantasy Tactics is very, like, old-school Final Fantasy and, like... Mm -hmm. And I have actually seen Final Fantasy Tactics, now that you say that, so, yeah. Yeah, it's War been of the Lions yeah. is what it's called now. It's on, like, every mobile phone uh, store. 
Um, and if you haven't played it, you should definitely play it. Um, the story of Phoenix Covenant is um, we had a, a friend who grew up playing Final Fantasy Tactics, had played it like dozens of times alongside um, uh, Xenogears and Chrono Cross, I think. You know, the classics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the classics. Yeah, he had uh, just um, been laid off uh, and uh, had a brief period of time before he was going to pick up and move to Japan um, to do some immersions since he actually studied with me. He studied and minored in Japanese with me at, uh, at UPenn. Um, and we at that time were doing a bunch of like startup ideas, just trying to see what throwing things against the wall, I guess is the best way to describe it. Um, and he was like, hey, I have some time here. Um, you guys seem to be throwing things against the wall. We always said we wanted to do something together. Why don't we make a game? Um, and so we sat around a um, dining table and were essentially second graders because we got out our construction paper and our poster board, um, some paper, and drew some grids on um, on uh, cardboard and uh, you know scribbled on paper and just like protoed. And that's, you know, the heart of game design is that uh, for anyone who wants, wants, you know, to get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did that for like a month, uh, ended up uh, with something where we're like, oh, cool, this is, this, this is interesting. Um, and our friends tried it out and they said, this is interesting. Um, and they said it in, you know, the positive way. Uh, Not like, one... oh, interesting, <laughs> yeah. interesting. Ooh, cool. Mm-hmm. When are you mm-hmm. going to leave or get a real job? Um... <laughs> this is cool. So do you want to do something else? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How how long is this game? Um, no, uh, we but we did have a friend who was like, yeah, you if you think this is real or want it to be, you have to test it out on people who aren't obligated to like it. Um, so we actually sh- uh, went to, you know, way back when game board game meetups were a thing you know i remember pre, that it was cool pre-apocalypse yeah back in the day yeah um we went to one or we went to a few actually um and just tried the game out and people actually seemed to enjoy it um and so uh the way phoenix covenant plays it has a board that's very like a chess board um it's six by eight um not eight by eight um and you have uh, instead of pieces that are um, there that are present at the start, you have cards that represent the units that you'll play. Um, those units have different um, stats, um, you know, an attack power, uh, health, um, a range, whether they attack, you know, in melee and range. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you essentially move them around the board, and your goal is to knock your opponent's uh, life points down to zero before you get yours knocked out. Um, pretty straightforward. Um, and how in that, like, because I, I remember seeing in the video, you're, you're, you've got, you know, a lot of the, the characters are fighting, but how are you actually doing damage to your opponent? Like, yeah, obviously so, in Magic, it's if you attack and there's nothing to block, and then you take the damage. Yeah. If you die um, in Magic, you die in real life. Yeah. No, that's dreams, Nicole. That's dreams. <laughs> oh, no, that's, dreams. My bad, my bad. That's yeah. Dungeons and Dragons when performed by teenagers. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Um, so the way that uh, in our game you do it is if you get to your opponent's home row, which is the row that's like directly in front of you, which is where you usually summon your units, mm-hmm. um, you can attack an opponent's base, which is just assumed to be, you know, 
outside that, you know, the invisible okay. row beyond it. Um, right. Early versions, it was just that. Um, we also have, as you'll notice in the video, two hard points. Um, for each player has two hard points. Those hard points are on, are represented on the board, and you actually can build structures onto them. Those are also attackable, um, but when you attack them, they essentially are armored, so you only ever do half damage. So you're mm -hmm. always like, you know, there's a risk reward thing, or or a almost a press your luck luck um, strategic mechanic built into the game, where you are, you know. Uh, you're either positioning yourself to go directly for life points, which is a more dangerous positioning, or hesitantly sort of like going for half pace winning, which is safer, mm -hmm. but obviously, you know, you can time out in terms of your strategy. You can essentially like go too slow and then get beaten by an opponent who's given been given enough time to grow. Yeah, and I noticed that you had like, um, what I thought was really cool, you've got, you know, you're, you've got Different characters have different types of armor on different sides. Um, yeah. You've got the weak points in the back, so I assume that's what you mean by yes. If you run up to attack an opponent's base, then your weak point is going to be exposed, correct? And then somebody could yeah, um, and yeah. Uh, so that the heart of the game is that uh, we, you know, this broader conversation is about tactics and what you know, what do we think makes good tactics, etc. Early on in our design, we just had units essentially moving up a lane and down a lane um and while that was like okay that just wasn't you know didn't feel crunchy and compelling to us mm -hmm. um and so once we said well what if our units can turn um and uh you know what if facing essentially matters which is one of the core elements of games like final fantasy tactics mm -hmm. where if you attack an enemy in the front you do less damage than if you attack them from behind right. um and so on our cards there are eight essentially sides the four cardinal directions and the four diagonals that you can get attacked from um and uh any of those sides can either be armored or be weak points um and uh because of that anytime you attack a weak point you do double damage anytime you attack armor you do half damage um and just a normal side is when you do normal damage um and so that positioning positioning both matters for um for your your units but also trying to take advantage of your opponent's positioning so like in our demo um that we give to people oftentimes the first thing we have them do is use a cavalry like a fast unit a unit that has multiple movements to move behind mm -hmm. an opposing unit and attack a weak point um where normally that unit is very heavily armored in the front and there's just no way to beat them um and yeah i the game is super compelling because that also is a risk reward like press your luck mechanic right if you gun for weak points uh any most of the time if you're attacking a weak point with a melee unit you're exposing your weak point um so you have to be you know there's a uh, risk reward and also like a how do i position it you know calls back to that chess concept of how do i position mm -hmm. a multiple set of units such that I discourage, I can take advantage of, of um, situational weak points without, you know, getting obliterated in response. Right, right. Yeah, and I find that that stuff really interesting. I I grew up kind of in games playing a lot of D&D um, &D miniatures and things like that, a Dreamblade, all other types of games that are, you know, very strategy-based like that and, and tactical. Um, and, and I do like that push-pull of, like, um, of... You know what? Are, what are you willing to give up to get what you need, right? Because like sometimes, 
making those those you know runs at the opponent if they don't work or even if they do work <laughs> you still very well may be making some big sacrifices to do those uh, and i think those are really interesting decisions to have to make yeah it sounds and... like an epic tagline also what are you willing to give up to get what you want true and you know the tagline to almost every fast and furious movie <laughs> family Family. Family. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Family. What were you going to say, Shiraman? Sorry, I interrupted you. Um, no, I like. I think when you represent that well, um, and I think that, that part is also true to actual tactics, right? Like when you talk about um, like MMA and like fighting in that way, right? Like especially when you have an opponent that is like on the ground oftentimes like uh going in to like strike a finishing blow or whatever is your weakest position right it's it's a point at which um your advantage can more, most easily be taken away from you because you know a person on the ground is actually quite stable and they have a ground to push against um and so uh yeah i think it's cool when you can reflect that in a game um and a little bit more interesting than just having units with a giant pile of hit points and everyone just bashing each other, you know. Not to, you know, badmouth any games in particular, but I think a lot of, um, you know, the digital card game experiences for us had that model of just like play a bunch of units have them smack each other and then disappear from the field and there just wasn't there you weren't making interesting uh, tactical decisions you might be making interesting strategic decisions about like when to play cards or etc but oftentimes all you were doing was trading for card advantage right like whoever had right. four cards uh when, if you had four cards when your opponent only has two cards left then your chance of winning is like 85 percent or something like that right right um and uh we wanted to build a game we tried to build a game where that's just not true where um a momentary card advantage does not translate into a significant you know higher chance of winning the game um it's interesting that you said that because jason wasn't there recently a conversation in the discord about strategy versus tactics yeah yeah we um we we had a good conversation you know of the old like what is strategy and what is tactics right and you know in in what most of us kind of settled on is the what I think is the more the most common definition of which is you know um, that strategy is a plan right strategy is what you're going to do uh, and how you're going to do it and tactics is how you implement it and what you actually do with the strategy right um, generally you need both but if all you have a strategy you'll never get anything done and if all you have is tactics you'll probably uh, fail because you didn't have a good plan. Uh, that covered the whole thing, you know, and, and I think certainly for strategy games, right, that's the whole point is that if you, um, you know, if you look at like uh, a game with strategy and tactics, you can, if you're not looking at the whole game, if you're just looking at those battle for battle, um, then you're not going to, you know, you're, you're going to be at a much uh, weaker uh, position, I think, than the other player who's looking at the whole game and trying to, you know, think ahead. It's why some chess players, you know, can think they can they can compute in their head five moves ahead, um, which is insane to me. Like I, I can't do that with chess. I feel like I can do that with some tactic games where I can say, okay, here are their options. Um, and chess is arguably simpler than some tactics games, but I feel like is this like utterly perfect like 
like boiled down iteration of all of those things that like it's so pure that somehow that makes it vastly more complicated in the decision space because of the reduced complexity than we'd see in most tactics games is that does that make any sense am i yeah <laughs> um i mean it makes a certain amount of sense i think it's very daunting to try to think that amount of moves ahead of your opponent um and it and certainly games with randomized decks like magic uh mm-hmm. or or peak of right like uh let you off the hook because you don't know what's coming right like there isn't right. you have no excuse uh, you have a ready excuse in games like those to not be able to predict what's coming you know down the pipe because there's information you just can't know um whereas with chess all the information is there you have no excuse it's just mm-hmm. how capable you are of doing that work but i think some of that is also just um like thinking about um being able to think five moves ahead is essentially the same as thinking about like looking at a picasso and being like i want to paint that right like you're not gonna (laughs) get there of course it's daunting of course you're not gonna get there on your first like hundred tries right Right. um i think you know it'll take you a while um and i think go interests me a little bit more than chess but i think you know uh Maybe that's just because I watched Hikaru no Go, um, and that that anime is both super cute, and super incredible, um, and like again, a very good like strategic game, uh, historically so, um, and demonstrated uh, demonstrated that there are you know it takes you a long time to breach those levels before you can be an accurate predictor, um, and you know that's when you're talking about the AIs that uh, are trained to beat grandmasters of chess right like those the machine learning algorithms are being pumped full of so many uh, so much data right like mm-hmm. essentially so much learning is being done behind the scenes that emulates the learning that you know we would have to do to, to approach that level mm-hmm. um that i think you know when we get the news articles it's like chess has been broken right or it's been solved right like go has been solved like when will all these games be solved? What um, I think people miss is what really is meant by solved is these computers are armed with enough, like so much uh, information that they can mm-hmm. just make really good bets. Um, right. And that's the exact same thing that you're doing as a grandmaster, right? You just right. have seen every board state and you know, based on your board state, this is the next three likely board states. And they, these are the moves that are ideal based on that. Right. Right. Um, it's That's like a good when point. I, yeah. When I hear someone talking about uh, who's good at Rubik's Cubes, talking about Rubik's Cubes, that's what I think of because they're talking about like, oh, yeah, I'm just looking for these faces. And then when I see that face, I know to do this thing. Um, right. Right. It's not like this is these this you have to do this and then this. It's not a list of steps. It's like a right. uh, recognize a pattern, do something about it, recognize a pattern, do something about it. And so I think it's just a right. thing that, that takes time. Um, yeah that's that's a really that's a really good point um and you're right obviously to get to those points to be that good it takes a lot of practice i i was reading and i think i've mentioned this before on the show that something i found really interesting about chess is that speaking of computers you've got grandmasters now and and newer like in, you know up and coming masters and grandmasters who are um using those computer programs to look for things that have never been done in chess Look for move sets that have never happened before. And all the games that have been played that have been recorded 
look for things that have never happened, and then attempt to do those things to keep people on their toes, you know, when they're playing to, to make, which it's just mind boggling to me that like that, even like the fact that that's, that's possible that things haven't happened with how many games of chess have been played. Like, you know what I mean? Like, well, yeah, I think, uh, the, I mean, really what they're talking about there is a meta, right? Like, so, Oh yeah. Big time. Yeah. When people, you know, and, uh, they've been trying to design like good solving AIs for like, uh, I know there were like articles about I can't remember which college was trying to like uh, do like Starcraft or um, but the most inter- interesting thing to me was MOBAs right like MOBAs are really hard to solve because there are a lot of different combinations and like really what what those AIs are doing is saying like I've developed this rule set I know when I see this to do this right so if you throw something random at them um, they don't know what to do um right right um and it's the exact same thing as um if you take like a a pro tennis player and you Mm -hmm. throw like an absolute noob at them Mm -hmm. right like the shots that come to them are so different than what they're trained to expect they're not you know they're not going to be returning or they're not going to be playing at that same level right because they're throw them off their game yeah so like you know we were talking about Ted Lasso before, right? But that idea of, um, you know, at the end of the first season, we were talking about the Chaos Hammer. Right? Like, that's a valid strategy when you're playing against an AI, an AI which is really just representation of, how, of what we do, right? We right. understand a meta, and then once we're comfortable in that meta, as long as people keep playing in that meta, of course we can right. win, right? Um, right? But if someone's like, but have you seen me do this? Um, and then, you know, the computer's like, I have no idea. Like, I have no rule my set of rules that gives me like a high percentage chance of victory here right so i'm just going to try something random i think i do remember reading an article that showed people beating an ai that had previously like quote unquote solved things because they played in a essentially an erratic way right Um, in it in it yeah you know it's interesting you talk about like the tennis thing too one of the things i had read about um several years back when when texas hold'em had become super popular was that the World Series of Poker, you know, the same people would, would get to that that final table a lot. But then you started having this huge influx of, of noobs who just had $10,000 to spare for some reason. And they were like, I'm really good at There's poker. a problem I'd like to have. Yeah, right? Like, I just got this $10,000. I don't know what to do with it. I guess it's I'll waste a it hole in my turn. pocket. Yeah, literally it's on fire. But um, these, so, so you get all these noobs in there playing hold them with these really really experienced people and that's what's happening is they're they're like they'll win a hand and you know afterwards you would like you'd see a pro get knocked out and afterwards they'd be being interviewed and they're like well they played this combination you should never play that it's like but but they beat you right and they beat you because they did something stupid and they got lucky because hey guess what like there's still luck involved in this game of luck and I know it's a game of skill and a game of strategy and a game where experience really does help. But when you start having people do those crazy things, pros don't necessarily know how to react to that, right? Um, you can't bluff someone who's just dumb and not good at the game, right? Like, I can't scare you out of the game if you have, like, this huge amount of false confidence, right? <laughs> like, like, it doesn't work. Right. And, and you have, like, those players essentially are doing that thing right they have a set of i know when people do this that this is this is my expected you know value on um 
on the hand that I'm playing and etc. And yeah, mm-hmm. when you get those those new players who are just like who either don't know the game or are honestly just doing crazy stuff because they don't care. Yeah, of course that's going to throw you off because they will make decisions that are essentially suboptimal, right? Um, and that becomes right, right. that's the that's the notional evolving meta, right? Where um, met you know your strategies only work if the world responds in the way that you expect it to. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really interesting. I uh, saying that word suboptimal always reminds me of um, you know I play tested someone's game and like they got they got mad at me when I lost it. Then there were like four people playing and I was like not I wasn't playing in like a smart strategical way. I was mm-hmm. just like, what if I do this? And like after the play test, he was like, well, of course you lost. You were you were being suboptimal. You weren't optimizing your moves. And it's like. It was a very lighthearted, silly game, first of all. And second of all, like, if you're not, if you're, if you're watching a playtest and getting mad because people aren't doing it right, like, if your game has a right way to play it, th- does that make was sense? The, like, wait, what, was the designer getting angry at you or yes, other? The oh, designer. That, that... I mean, Anthony always got mad at me when I did dumb stuff in, in board games, but he also sometimes was like, he would do that too. If he was doing a playtest, he would be like, well, I'm going to choose this strategy that's, yeah, yeah I want to, I want to try to break the game. So I'm either going to choose this strategy that I think is right. going to make me win way too much, or I'm going to choose a strategy that's going to like, that's, that's not what you're telling me to do to see what happens, you know? Right. And I think, you know, as game designers, uh, we should make space, right. For, you know, like uh, the, there was that whole article from, um the from wizards the magic guys about like johnny's timmy's i can't remember orthos there's a bunch of essentially like uh, archetype player player archetypes they have like people who essentially adopt a different approach to magic interesting Um, yeah where it's uh i will try to look it up it's an incredible read um and you know talked about essentially there are players that like combos right these are the slay the spire players who will like go out of their way to create like this is my infinite combo which i did when i was playing the defect right like when it initially came out i had a a combo that never ended just killed everything in a single turn um because you could infinite combo at that point i think they coded it out um it was a while ago but um and then there were like uh I can't remember. They're uh, like Vorthosian players were players that literally played on an axis that wasn't game related. They cared about the plot or the characters, and they just wanted a deck that was full of characters they liked. Right? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, right? They probably and lost so, a lot, right? Sure, but I'm not saying that it was bad. I'm saying, for but notionally, they also won sometimes because of that that okay, thing, right? right? Like. Right you you sort of like oh wow this person has a lot of cards in their hand they must be holding on to like lightning bolts and etc but you don't know that you're sitting across from a Morthosian player who just has like three of their favorite planeswalkers and they're running a four color deck and it's like impossible they're never going to get those cards out on the field (laughs) they may be that player that's forced to discard cards because nothing in their hand is playable uh but they're having the time of their lives right um and you're like i shouldn't do anything he has four cards in his and um um or yeah or like um you know she's playing five colors like this must be a master like must have pulled this deck off of um channel fireball or something i'm gonna get crushed right like i think um my point was essentially that i think um 
it's definitely frustrating if a designer is saying there's a right way to play my game. That's a thing right. that um, we explicitly wanted to avoid. We wanted to avoid what we call dominant strategies, right? Like the you know, um, and almost like when you're talking about game balancing, right? Like that is one of the major goals, right? If there's only one way to play the game, the game is then boring, right? Like a computer can do it, which is my struggle with StarCraft II when they literally gave you the like, uh, the here's what actions you did at every second of the game. You could, it would generate that printout at the end of the game and you could like go to sites and pull out what pros did which always had a crazy APM. But I was I looked at that and I was like, but I could just program something to do this for me. That's not, right. I'm not making interesting choices. I'm just, right. I'm right. literally a computer at this point and a bad one because I'm right. being distracted by the audiobook I'm listening to in the background, right? <laughs> um, First one, one, of the things, one of the things we used to talk about on the show um, and I've, I've brought up since then, but we met this guy at Gen Con one time, and we affectionately called him Cape Guy. Um, and uh, it was, was he because he was—he was a middle-aged dude um, with a top hat and a cape, and I think I think cane, like you know, like a like a style choice cane. The complete getup, uh, yeah. Yeah, like and and the best way we could describe his strategy at playing games was aggressive losing. Um, like he would, and I don't. I don't know if he was trying to help or what, but like literally you would be like the, so a great example, there was a game by Chevy Dodd, um, the designer that he had been testing. I think Neil Roberts was testing it um, because Neil was working on the game with him and, and it was a zombie game. And the goal of the game was to keep your yard as clear as possible of zombies while building up your stuff. Uh, and this guy did everything he could to make as many zombies be in his yard as possible, which meant he was going to lose. Um, and we played more than one game. We had him play other games. And he just, that's just what he did in every game. He just picked like not suboptimal, like the least optimal, like the worst strategy possible, and then just committed to it. Um, and it was really, really eye opening um, because like, you can't design the game for that person, right? Because right. that person is one in a million, frankly. But it, it does start to make you ask yourself, like, we would say, like, what would Cape Guy do like, in this situation? How would play this game? I, think you'd, uh, I don't think you necessarily design a game for that person, but I absolutely would love to have that playtester around always, right? That you essentially want to design for, like, 80% of that person. Because for me, another thing that I think is super valuable is, like... Any game that I see that is like competitive, mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the things that I always like check when I play the game, um, I, or at least find myself like remarking on or at least observing, is what is the point spread at the end of the game? Since so many competitive mm -hmm. games yep. are PP, right? Yep. And I, uh, to me, it's a stylistic or an artistic ding if the point spread is is too wide. Um, commonly, um, because anytime someone loses, you know, if it's a point, if the game where everyone ended in like the 60, 70 point range, and there's that one player at 15 points, that one player didn't have a good time. Yeah. Um, right. right. Like, um, and I want anyone who plays uh, our games to have a good time. Yeah. And so, yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to be like, let me add enough rubber banding um, 
mechanics to prevent you know committed rune player right. from right. <laughs> to make it really hard but like but i want to have enough rubber banding so that on average there's like a 10 point spread or a five point spread right mm -hmm. like i don't want that game that has a 40 point spread um because you know there's nothing we asked um on our playtest feedback form one of our questions uh is like how uh you know if you lost the game um did you feel like um you were destined to lose essentially um it's worded better i can't remember what the wording is we like ran through all of our playtest feedback form wording a bunch but like you know we want to know if players felt like they had a chance uh, mm -hmm. because that's when the game is interesting right um oh, of course yeah yeah it's why we obfuscate scores so much in games as game designers right so that people don't know um what their score is you know they during the game they don't know that they've got 15 points to everybody else is 70. i um, i will tell you guys that uh the one and only time i played kittens in a blender i refused to let any kittens go in the blender even though i lost and everybody was like this isn't how you play the game nicole some kittens have to go in the blender and i was like not on my watch <laughs> yeah i'm not sure why you played that game like i wouldn't play that game that sounds awful yeah um, i shouldn't have done it i shouldn't have done it yeah I lost I, terribly. I, yeah, I, you look I actually like you're still like you're still recovering from it. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> like the look on your face is very sad. Some serious PTSD <laughs> going on here. Yeah. Um, I I remember um in one game that I worked on uh, with a publisher that it didn't end up getting published, but we were we were considering it, and uh, and it was a game where you had to ante every round, um, and and theoretically you should you should you should get some of your money back right like you should win some portions of the game but we were so worried because if you ran out of money you were essentially eliminated from the game there's nothing you could do because you're out you're out yeah so we literally problem. calculated the the minimum i mean the what is the minimum amount of money we can give you to start the game to where you will if you lose every single round because you're that bad at the game on the last round of the game you will put in your last coin and still have played the entire game even though you're in last place um and you know what nobody ever noticed like it was never a problem like because i was really worried that like well it's you know we're, we're you know giving this advantage in the wrong way and um and we were i mean nobody ever caught it like and, and i watched more than one person do that um especially at higher player counts that was more likely to happen yeah um but it was it was just really interesting um you know and because player elimination gets an incredibly bad rap in a game that's not super fast for good reason i'm not defending player elimination um i don't know it sounds like you're defending player elimination but what was that nicole i said i don't know it sounds like you're defending player elimination i think that in very no, short kidding, games it's okay no yeah, I'm, I'm saying yeah. i think in very short games it's okay um but anything you know longer than that I mean, talk about not having fun, right? You're not the person who got 15 points. You're the person who got eliminated 10 minutes In into a 40-minute yeah, game. Yeah. That's yeah, not it's, fun. It's the only thing that's worse than playing a, against a blue deck in Magic. Um, I played the <laughs> Oregon Trail card game, and I'm pretty sure I drew uh, You Have Died of Dysentery either the first or second round. And then the first person who loses is supposed to just run the shop, which is nothing. There's nothing to do. No. And yep. I was like, well, see you guys in half an hour. <laughs> yep. I, games that are designed like that are really frustrating. I I once did, uh, and this is so, uh, I, do either of you remember True Dungeon from Gen Con? 
Uh, no? I do remember that. Yeah. So it was like it was basically like LARPing, but like on rails, right? Right. Like you showed up, and it was really only like the rolling and stuff. So, so we get we we pay forty bucks to do it, right? It's like a forty minute experience. We get in, we we go to the we do like one. No, we didn't do anything. We got to the first thing, and it was a balance beam that went across the room. Like there was a rock, a balance beam, and another rock. And um, and uh, and they said, okay, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, uh, I'm going to walk across the balance beam. Like I have decent balance. So like I'm just – so I just walk across the balance beam, no big. And um, and uh, everybody else does the same thing, no problem. And then the, the DM lady, she's like, okay, you, you have to make a roll now. And I rolled, and I rolled a one, and she's like, you, you died. I was like, but I paid $40 to be here, and that was it. They just walked me out, and I was done in the first freaking room. Um, well, wait, what was the roll for? Uh, to, for? For, because it was windy. And then I asked my other See, friends. That doesn't who... even make sense. You yeah. made it across the balance beam. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I get you. Yeah, I, I, we're on the same page, man. It's also weird that they're trying to blend rolls in that way because the whole point of rolling is to abstract out stuff that happens. Yeah, and here's the best part: my friend he went after me with like a different group, and I said, "What happened?" He goes, "Oh, they didn't make me roll." And I was like, "What?" He's like, "Well, we told him we were going to crawl across." I'm like, "Did you know?" He said, "We just told him we were going to." Like, so you didn't even do it. You just said, "I'm going to crawl across it," and they said, "Well, that's safer." Which it's not. It's a it's a balance beam. Crawling across a balance beam is not easy. Like no, arguably yeah, so. much harder than walking. Thank you. So, anyways, anyways, so yeah, that's that's my player elimination nightmare story that lost me forty dollars and that's it. That's grudge. that's completely bonkers that they wouldn't give you your money back. <laughs> well, I mean, it's no, it's completely bonkers that they would let that happen. Yeah, that's real. Like, that's that they real. would let a yeah. role determine that you. Um, and now if we had paid money and bought these tokens that they sell, I could have got like a re-roll and then maybe rolled a one and still got my $40 and the money I spent on the token. So from, I mean, that sounds like a solid ripoff, but also it's an, it's an abomination from a DM point of view, right? Because your job as a DM is to make a fun experience for your players. (laughs) It's not the DM versus the players. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Some DMs think it is, but. Um, they're wrong. Yeah, they're wrong because um, they, if they want to win, they can win. They literally make the rules. <laughs> right, and and if you want to play a game like that win loss game, be a player. Don't be a DM. Right. Right. Um, right. You are, uh, and you just miss out on so much of the incredible part of being a DM in terms of building a story and really playing off of your players like rp and strategic sense right like mm-hmm. do when they do crazy stuff which they will always do uh <laughs> being able to work around it is you know that's the fun part um uh we've been doing a fair share of uh dming in random in various forms and i think that yeah it just it's a it's a horribly horrible abomination if you roll a die and then just you know your character is dead um, right right that's just not an interesting story to tell in a space. Right. No, I mean, especially when it's one role and there was no foreshadowing about that. Right. I mean, uh, I, I've seen characters die in D and D where like 
the the dm made it very very clear that this was a poor choice the player was making like i you you're gonna have to make a rule if you do this this isn't this isn't a smart this is a bad idea like i i wouldn't suggest you do this like maybe we could try something no i'm gonna do okay and then they roll and then they died and that's different right like the dm was like you know this dm was like hey walk across this thing you got to get to the other side so we did and then well you died um but but i didn't like i literally walked across um so anyways um at least turn on the fan to represent the i was gonna say that yes yes turn on one of those huge metal fans maybe one of us will fall because of the wind you don't know it can happen i i don't think they could afford the liability insurance to make that happen probably not and the thing is true dungeon is a huge event it sells out every year at gen con i don't know if they're still doing it but they were for a while this was one of the very first years they did it Um, okay so they're probably just ironing out the yeah that sounds like growing pains yeah i mean that sounds like the first time i tried to dm (laughs) yeah this sounds like Yeah, I charged all my players forty dollars. Um, <laughs> just killed them all out of balance beam. And then I like, made well? them play an obstacle course in my home. Oh my gosh! They were at the tavern sitting. I had them introduce their characters, and I said a beholder showed up and just raid the disintegrated all of them. Mission yep. accomplished. Easiest two hundred dollars I ever made. <laughs> oh my goodness. So before we finish here, because we're, we're getting lower on time here, I, I feel like we should probably uh, talk about tactics at all. Talk like so. Let's so we we have talked we've talked some about tactics and uh, throughout this, but um, I would love to hear like what do you think are some general rules that make tactics like like what. What are some general guiding principles to you that you would consider when thinking of a tactics game? Um, yeah, so um, I so before you mentioned that, um, well, Nicole, actually, you mentioned the discussion on Discord about the difference between strategy and tactics. Um, and I think, like, semantically, you guys are totally correct. But um, at least for me, from, like, having designed PCOV, um what it came to, I do think strategy is a plan, um, and we would uh, we would characterize it even as like this is your general approach, and it's most reflected in the deck that you build, right? Your deck has a innate strategy. This is how I think I'm going to win the game, right? But no plan survives first contact with the enemy or any <laughs> variant of that, right? And tactics are this thing. I have this current board state. How can I manipulate that board state to my advantage? Um, and I think that when we're talking about tactics games, um, the biggest elements that make those, like that tactical question and how it meshes into your strategy interesting are how does movement work? How does movement work in your game, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, how do, like what, what relevance is positioning? Uh, and um, how do the abilities of those, um, those units or whatever you're essentially playing with um, factor into both like tactical play, which is like, what am I doing this turn? And what do I think my opponent's going to do on the next turn? Um, and into my broader strategy, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think we found by far movement and positioning was like the most important thing. It was also called out as the most, as the biggest element of our game that people enjoyed, right? They really liked 
armor and facing and like being able to find a weak point and that was a super satisfying moment for them yeah right? and that, that makes sense that's a tactical space right where they were like hey i pulled it off i had that one glorious turn where i like wiped out two of my opponent's units um and it doesn't matter if i win or lose i like won that moment <laughs> mission accomplished um <laughs> and so um yeah i'd say like if if you're out there designing a tactics game um that uh, a big thing to consider is movement. One of the things we struggle with, and I think we're still sort of struggling with, is the question of how movement works. Because we picked a square grid, um, and obviously square grids uh, have come with the struggle that diagonal movement is a little cheesy compared to moving um, orthogonally, which is mm -hmm. you know north, south, east, west. Um, because if you if those are equal, um, then moving diagonally is almost always more efficient, right, than moving up or to the side. Um, and so, you know, a lot of tactics games solve this problem by switching to a hex-based mm -hmm. uh, model, although hex boards are a little bit uh, harder to, like, shape in a way that is uh, easy to present. Um, but, um, you know, those are, the, those are parts of the consideration as well. Also, hex-based um characters mean that you have to sort of consider positioning a little bit differently um mm -hmm. but, oh absolutely yeah um i don't know if any of that so far has answered your question I yeah guess. no i think that's <laughs> i do think you know thinking like when i was watching the game um the the things that popped up to me in it for sure were the facing the movement the diagonal thing I, I thought was very interesting um, because, like I, I mentioned before, I grew up with the D and D minis and that war game playing that, and and the way they handled diagonals was it was a half move. So if you if you so the first diagonal was free, the second one cost one, the third so the even diagonals were cost one. Um, so if you would move one diagonal, it was essentially a bonus. Uh, and that second one was going to cost you, right? And so um, it required players to try and really think about how they would use that, right? Um, and, but I, I like the ability to move diagonal. Anytime I've ever had a game with movement in it, that's always a question people ask. And I always have just gone with, you can move diagonal. Like, or if I say adjacent, I mean orthogonal and diagonal. Um, because I just find that more interesting um in... i mean that's that's what we did i think we right. found it more uh more generally interesting harder obviously it makes a, a harder balance issue right oh game. for sure yeah um but uh one of the things it, it's interesting the things that emerge right um so because you can play enough units that you can have formations and etc diagonal movement doesn't buy you a win in mm -hmm. peak of and i think that that's one of you know when people as designers it's very easy to consider a problem um sort of uh surgically as in i'm just focused on this problem and it mm -hmm. seems like insurmountable you don't you aren't necessarily considering here are the other factors that are going to weigh in um and here is how they might affect how effective you know to move being able to move twice diagonally is going to be mm -hmm. um right because in our game like yeah it's super advantage advantageous if like you're the only unit on the board other than like one opposing unit and you're just like ah i got you i found your weak point but usually there are like four units on the board and if you just like sneak in you're gonna get murdered right <laughs> right right you can get back there but you, you're you gonna die to? next round yeah exactly um it's a yeah not not quite a winning proposition so like 
Um, I think there are, and I also think that you're, anytime you introduce a limit to players, um, it's one more thing they have to think about. Um, and obviously, limits provide the interesting things for strategies and tactics to bounce against, right? Like those, the essence of game design is the artful deployment of limits and, boundar- and boundaries mm-hmm. and essentially rules, right? Um, but uh, yeah, we we found like only orthogonal movement to be too constrictive. Um, so I 100% agree with you. It's interesting because I feel like most games, when they say adjacent or they talk about movement, they mean a square grid. They mean only orthogonal, right? Yeah, the cross. Yeah. Every time I've ever had a game, people always say, can I move diagonal? It's like, to me, it feels like everybody wants to, but nobody yeah, will let sure. them give the for people sure. what they want. <laughs> Jason, a man of the people. It's true. <laughs> it is Slinger true. Lillian. You know, any, so you talked a lot about how balancing is tough. Any tips on what y'all did to really bring home that balance to try to, um, because, you know, like, so, so, and I, I, I don't know with, with Phoenix Covenant, it was one game that you released, right? Have you ex- released expansions to it? We're working on that right now. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, the the sort of like the the hard truth essentially is, um, it was a very ambitious game. Um, we still believe in it really strongly, but I think it being our first game out of the gate was a little bit rough. And to be fair, a lot of designers. Um, uh told us and a lot of people in the industry told us hey maybe not this as your first game like design three other games and come back to this um but usually the way that it was put to us was like a you know just you know crap out three games and then and then do this and that was just completely uninteresting to us because we were balancing you know doing this versus a bunch of other things um and so i think we took a we bit uh took a huge bite of the apple um and so uh, the we are planning like expansions and then probably a second edition. Um, the game every time we played we showed the game to people and sold at conventions, uh, we tended to win over a lot of people. Like I think the game has a lot of um, raw potential. Um, and I think when you know to go back to your original question, which is about how did we play te- or how did we uh, balance it? Uh, aggressive playtesting. So like in order of advice, I'd say first and foremost, be an engineer when you're playtesting. Don't be uh, uh, a, God, I don't want to say something offensive to a group of people um, unintentionally, but like, I guess don't be uh, a casual writer, like someone who's, or casual creative um, right, in this right. in that space, right? Yeah. Like, obviously, when you're playtesting a new concept or whatever, you can just be like, "Yeah, just tell me what you think," and you sort of like, "Okay, right. I put that all in my brain. I'm gonna take that away and, and muddle over." But like, once you're actually doing um, playtesting for uh, balance, you have to say like, "Okay, these are the cards I'm focusing on." Right, you have uh-huh. to direct the feedback. Right, right, right. Um, and you and have to. I'm assuming seed certain play tests right so that you can see how do these cards work with those cards absolutely you know, and so yeah. we would have set decks that people played with that had like these are the cards so like 
in the in the middle and we were just playtesting the broad game we had playtest feedback forms that collected clear data that we could then look at a, pa a stack of 50 filled out forms and be like okay what are the data points that we have uh, and you know once you have the stats behind things you can it also makes the job a lot easier when you're mm -hmm. a team of designers right because as a team of designers anyone who's ever worked with other creatives knows at some point you're going to argue about something and right. that argument is going to get real bad real fast unless there's like some real facts right. involved yeah. Right. um yeah. and so um, and then af once we got to the card level of balancing, we actually ran heat tests where we would say, these are the four cards we're testing. This is the stable, essentially, deck that we're uh, deploying. And we wrote, you know, what did you think of this card? You know, did it seem too powerful, not powerful enough, et cetera? Like, we had a new section of our playtest form that was literally for each of those cards. We'd run that playtest, like, for 40 times. Um, and so uh, be rigorous, right? and mm -hmm. you know, take an engineering mindset. I think that's my advice. And then the third advice, which is obviously the hardest to, imp to potentially the hardest to implement, um, maybe not, is uh, if you can digitize your game in some form. Uh, and I'm mm -hmm. not saying like release Magic the Gathering Arena. I'm saying <laughs> like, uh, we found a program called Lackey CCG uh, that we hacked our game um, into and were allowed that allowed us to do digital playtesting. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, with Tabletop Simulator, there are a bunch of ways to do that. Um, right. Digital playtesting opens you up to be able to um, test with people more often, and ideally start collecting data digitally. Um, and so, the more data, when it comes to playtesting, the more data you can collect, the better off you are. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, and the reason I asked for the balancing is because, you know, notoriously a games that release sets of, you know, like again, D and D minis or Dreamblade. I remember heck Marvel dice masters. I remember had this issue too, where in magic has had this issue a million times. And that is the issue where you release something that you've tested a bunch and it's completely broken. Um, and in magic, they get to say, Hey, you can't use that in tournament play. Yeah, we, we banned these cards. Yeah, we banned yeah. these cards that we made because we were wrong. It's harder to do that when you've said, "Here's a game we're giving you. It's done. It's the game." Um, obviously, there's that bigger risk, right? We we talk about that with with board games versus video games, right? You make a board game, you publish it, you print yeah, it's it. Send it's harder to, to patch a board game yeah. than it is to patch a yeah. video game. Yeah, digital game. You just you just make a patch and you update it. Um, and while that's not obviously the easiest thing in the world, it's still possible, right? You know, you don't have to put a rata on a website and hope somebody who finds it, who's struggling with the rules, um, it, you just fix it. So yeah. that's why I was curious about that. But it sounds like y'all did a lot of playtesting. Um, and that's, that's really cool. I mean, you know, I mean, I, mean, I met them at Unpub where they yeah. were like, Nicole has seen our process. Testing. Yeah. And I think that's great. I mean, you know, for, for everybody saying, whoa, maybe this is a bit much for a first game, it seems like you took it very seriously and, and did you put the work in to do it, which is awesome. I'm, yeah, um, we, were three, uh, we were three computer uh, scientists, right, like trying our, our hand at game design. So I think that sort that of data-driven yeah. data approach just made sense to us, right? Um, and so I think we definitely got some looks when we walked in with a giant stack of playtest feedback forms, but I think... Um, I just like it. It flummoxed me when, um, you know, Nicole and I would be at like any of the 
just randomly playtesting like some indie designer's game mm -hmm. and then the feedback section would just be like people throwing dots at the game designer the mm -hmm. game designer being like oh hmm, okay yeah and then like walking away i'm like there's like i can barely remember what happened five minutes ago i don't know like how are you capturing any of this yeah yeah um that meant that they actually didn't care about any of that feedback yeah that's i write true. it down Sometimes I just make the squiggle like I wrote it down. I write down every single word everybody says, and then later I'm like, I don't know why I wrote this down. This was garbage. Or yeah, like, no. oh, this I, was I mean, useful. Sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's that's good. That's something to think about. And then I do this. I'm going to type it up on my imaginary typewriter. Yeah, and I didn't actually like write it down. No, I don't normally do that. But be, sometimes you get play testers where you're just like, okay, you've overstayed your welcome. <laughs> you are now, you are now... Talking about the graphic design, you're still talking about the graphic design. We asked you not to talk about the graphic design. One thing that go. frustrates me is when you walk into a play test with with targeted questions, like when we were testing the Laser Riders expansion, we were like, "Hey, this is the exact feedback that we want. We want feedback on these new characters. We want feedback on this." And people would be like, "Well, I don't like X X being like the turning mechanism." And it's like, "Bro, this game is published." yeah <laughs> i don't yeah. care what you think about the die right right so another piece of advice i'd say is um and that's pertinent to exactly what you're saying nicole um is uh find your well i mean your evangelists essentially like your the gamers that love your game to death and are looking for a way to help out because mm -hmm. a lot of the heat testing that we did was with those players um because those players will take what you said, Nicole, like we are really looking for info on these things, right? Um, and give you info on those things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah, think it's awesome. a hard, it's a harder sell when you um, give it to a, uh, a brand new person to be like, ignore everything else. Yeah. Just focus on these yep. things, right? And they're like, I'm learning the game. I don't right. know. Why yes, would I care about right? these things? Sending these yeah, it's things. tough. It's tough at places like Metatopia and Unpub. And even at Metatopia, we would be like, hey, we specifically need people who know how to play the game. But like, you're not always going to get that, you know? Right. I, I try really hard when I'm selecting play testers. I have certain core groups I'll go to for certain level. Like, where is the game at in the process? Like in the beginning... If it's a if it's a, a more hobby game that's going to require a lot more thinking, I may start with game designers because I know right. they're going to get it. And then you know, then to me, like the final testing is when you're doing it with like when you're doing it with gamers who have never experienced your game and this might be new to them, but you've got all of the of the little quirks worked out at that point. Now you're looking for like if you played this game, if you played this published game, what would you think of it? And, and then you can ask all your questions about that. Right. Um, but I think that's really important to know your audience. I That's a lesson I learned hard at Unpub, where um, the first Unpub, I, I would bring games. Uh, you know, I found that you, you'd want to bring multiple games because there were certain games I would show to the Unpub audience, and there were certain games I would play at night. After Dark, with, uh, yeah. Designers, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I knew which ones would be more, um, would people would give me better feedback for and I'd get better players for. Um and that was really, really helpful information. So, yeah. I, I buy that, although, and I'm happy to get some pushback on this comment. Um, my uh, warning is essentially, uh, there's a caveat to testing with designers. Um, I think there's two things that you have to bring to the table. One, uh, a little bit of thicker skin, because designers tend to be more uh especially if it's a designer to a designer they're mm -hmm. more 
they're not going to pull any punches. Um, and uh, so, like, but recognize that they're, you know, they're saying everything that they, uh, they're saying usually out of a sense of camaraderie and love and wanting you to, like, come mm -hmm. up, you know, get to a better place design-wise. Um, and then the second thing is, designers, for me, are always a hard um, test group because... So like in the theory of requirements analysis, um, right? Like a lot of times when people tell you this is the thing I need, right? They're telling you a solution and you have to derive what the problem was. Yes, um, and yes. And designers that, are notoriously bad at that. Yes. yes. And when you go to designers, they're all about solutions, right? Because they're mm -hmm. designers. Of course they are, right? Right, um, right. Whereas a player is going to be like, I don't feel great, right? Like this, uh, I feel like I'm losing. Um, like they won't be able right, to be like, right. oh, if you just tweak this and, you know, maybe if you added an extra move dynamic here or made, you know, diagonal move at 1.5. And and so like designer feedback can be great, right? And the, mm -hmm. the ideas that are propo proposed can be great, but there's an extra step when right, you're dealing right. with designers, which is make sure to like run it all through the sieve of like, what are the problems they're actually raising right, really before considering the yeah. design. And and to that, that is something I consider. And that's why the first play testers I have of most games are the same core group of designers, because I can say, this is what I'm trying to do, right? And, and I, they'll understand that if they say, hey, have you considered doing this because this is broken? It's like, that I may be like, no, it's it's not. <laughs> Here's why it's not. Chill like, out. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> maybe just sit down. No, um, like, or to say, like, hey, I know this feels wonky, but that's not how I want to fix it. So what else you got? Um, fix my problems for me. So also, yeah, well, I mean, hey, and and to ahead. other designers, I'd say like I mean, well, obviously, once you experience it, you understand it more. But if you are asked to play test a game, try to keep that in mind as well. Like when mm -hmm. I give feedback, I always like bucket it. I'm like, this is my player feedback, right? Like these are the things that I, I struggled with, right? These are the things I loved, mm -hmm. um, and you know, or these are the things that are confusing, right? Just like here are reactions and emotions and right, like right. Uh, problems, essentially, potentially um or like successes right like and you could just have that that's the and then like if you want the other bucket here are suggestions or like i noticed this and this fits a pattern whatever i'll give you the designer bucket um but it's always useful um if you can present that like the um the problem space that designers can uh are really desperate to act on right yep totally totally agree well, this is uh this has been a great discussion here. I know we, we meandered a bit, but I feel like it was all relevant and, and all pretty useful. So um so thanks a lot for, for joining us tonight. I super appreciate um you uh being willing to chat with us. This is taking this is taking time out of our video gaming time though. I just want you to know. I'm that. sorry, I'm sorry. Well <laughs> I'm not sorry. Awesome. Well, hey uh everybody, thanks for joining us, listeners. I hope you enjoyed our conversation here. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can, of course, go to buildinggamepodcast.com. You can find our Discord link there. Uh, come check out that. You can email us at buildinggamepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can um, find us on the Twitter. I am, uh, the show is at podcastptg. I am at J.A. Slenderlin. Nicole is at Toits. Uh, Shwaraman, what's your, uh, what is your, are you on Twitter? So, like, our game is on Twitter. Oh, okay. Um, that works, too. We are at PHX Covenant. At PHX Covenant, okay. So yes, 
Well, thank you all again. And uh, listeners, come back next week and every week. But until then, good night. Good night. Cheers. Building the game with Jason and friends. With Jason and friends. Building the game. Building the game with Jason and friends. With Jason and friends.